our city for your glory, that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Just before we start this morning, I want to kind of talk a little bit about our plan for the next uh, few weeks. We're continuing this morning our ongoing series through the New Testament book of Acts, but this is going to be the last sermon from Acts for a little while. Uh, We walk through books of the Bible typically from start to finish as a church. That's our normal practice, and we will continue that. But also, we look at different subjects and topics within Scripture as we have opportunity, and particularly with longer books, like the book of Acts is 28 chapters. We will often take them in chunks and in pieces. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11 here in just a moment. And then uh, we're going to take a break from Acts for a few weeks. Next week, uh, I'm very excited, we're going to do a single Sunday focused on the subject of baptism. And the reason for that is that because of the pandemic, we stopped doing baptisms for a while. It's pretty hard to socially distance, you know, when you're baptizing somebody. And in the early days of the pandemic, when everybody was still figuring it out, that was one of the things that we just had to kind of stop doing. And we realize now with where things are at um, with the pandemic, it is okay and actually appropriate for us to move back toward baptisms. And so I'm excited to say we've got a couple of people that are going to be baptized uh, this week. And because of the pandemic, we're going to go ahead and video record those just so that we can figure out and be really careful with distancing and all that kind of stuff uh, and and not have them here. And we're going to actually see the videos of their baptisms next week. And we hope that's a step toward doing live baptisms again in the service. So we're excited to celebrate what God has been doing in the lives of people even during the pandemic. So we're going to talk about baptism for a week. It's been a while since we've even talked about it. So we're going to look at scripture, see what it teaches us about baptism, and then celebrate what God is doing. Uh, Then we're going to spend a couple of weeks doing this little thing called Easter that comes up uh, every year. We'll be in Palm Sunday and Easter focusing on the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then after Easter, we're going to spend a few Sundays on the all-important subject of marriage. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to not only talk about it on Sunday mornings, but actually engage in things that help many of us as married couples in our church build and strengthen our relationships. Marriage is hard. Marriage is also good. It has been extra hard for most of us during a pandemic time. So whether or not you are married, this is an important topic for us as a church. So we will look at the subject of marriage and give some practical help for all of us and encourage um, our marriages and families in our home. And then later on this spring, we'll resume our study in the book of Acts. So that's a little uh, look at what's coming in the next few weeks. I want to encourage you to engage with that and be part of where we're headed as a church. This is uh, a big year actually, for Harvest Community Church, uh, 2021. Uh, Later this year, we will turn 35 years old as a congregation. Do you realize that? This is our 35th birthday. And so I'm looking forward to celebrating that. We'll probably do that later this year, maybe uh, toward the fall at some point. The plans are still very, very loose, but we will firm them up and communicate more when we get closer. Just look forward to commemorating that and looking back on God's faithfulness and then especially looking ahead at what God may have for us as a church. But recognizing that has kind of got me already reflecting on my own family's 14 and a half year experience and journey of being members of this particular local congregation. It doesn't take me long to realize that, man, over that time period, we've made so many friends. Uh, I look out here and I see so many faces where you aren't just like attenders of a church that I preach at, you know. I've spent time in living rooms, time in backyards, time by hospital beds. I've had the opportunity to 
uh, as they say, marry and bury (laughs) quite a number of people. Just being able to walk with families and the joys of life, welcoming newborns. We've just had a couple born in our church to families in our church here just in this last week or two. So exciting to welcome new life. All the way up to ushering saints home to glory and dealing with the grief on the other end. Performing weddings and celebrating those things. Significant times. Many of those relationships have had huge impacts on myself, my wife Amy, our two kids. Both of my kids were baptized here at Harvest Community Church and became members of this church, realizing that being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a church member, not even being a pastor's kid, but that in their own hearts and minds, they want to follow Jesus and commit to his local church. Harvest has been a part of all of that for us. And here's the crazy thing. 20 years ago, I didn't even know Harvest Community Church existed. It did, but I didn't know it. And so suddenly I discover Harvest and we land here and here's this church. And now I look back and see how much this church has impacted us. 20 years ago, Harvest existed and I didn't know it. But you know, 35 years ago, Harvest didn't exist. Where did it come from, this church that I suddenly discovered about 15 years ago and became part of soon thereafter? 35 years ago, we didn't exist. Harvest was started in 1986 as a cooperation between our association of churches, which has been known until recently as CB Northwest, Conservative Baptist Association of the Northwest, in partnership with a local church, Village Baptist Church on Murray Boulevard in Beaverton. Village partnered with our association to plant, as we say in church circles, that is to start a brand new church in an area that was mostly fields and orchards at the time, but everybody knew lots of housing was planned and this community would fill in, and it has done that. And how important it was to have a gospel witness in a faithful church in this part of a growing city. Some people had a vision to see more churches planted in a growing area. Now that takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of people to give themselves to a task like that in order to start a new church. It's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. So thank God that CB Northwest and Village were willing to do that, which raises an interesting question. How did Village get there? On Murray Boulevard. Actually, I had a good guess. Not quite. Not quite. Interestingly enough, in 1949, Village Baptist Church was planted by Forest Grove, First Baptist Church. Clear out in the then very rural community of Forest Grove, Oregon, who planted a new church in what at that time was known as the Marlene Village neighborhood in the rapidly growing town of Beaverton. The church just came to be called Village after that name. And so they too had a vision to start a church that then later started a church that then later is the place that we gather and worship. And so how did this association of churches come together and have this vision for church planning? Well, did you know, six years before that, 1943, 75 pastors and church leaders met in Chicago, Illinois. Don't ask me why. I don't know why it was Chicago, but it was Chicago. They established what uh, was, was two associations. One was a, a foreign mission society, as they called it back in the language of that day. It was an organized effort to make sure the gospel went out to other nations that didn't have as many local churches in their own language where they could hear about Jesus. And then they established a partner sh- uh, organization for essentially domestic missions, or in other words, planting churches here in the U.S. And those two associations soon thereafter merged and became our Association of Churches, CB Northwest. Now this came with significant risk and cost. 
All the churches that joined and founded those associations back in 1943 were leaving a denomination that had abandoned its doctrinal roots, and they risked losing their properties and their buildings. This was not a choice without cost. And many of those pastors that founded that association had their retirement accounts in a fund that was managed by that old denomination. They were risking their financial futures because they could lose their retirement funds. But they thought it was important enough to gather and start a whole new association. Why do people do that? Because they were committed to extending the gospel through local churches, both here at home and abroad internationally. We could keep following the train all the way back, but, but here's the point of this. Here's the point. Not only is Harvest Community Church today simply the latest in a long, a latest link in a long chain, you know, but actually the point that I'm making is a little more specific than that. None of those links are inevitable, right? Churches don't just happen. We experience them that way. You know, we grow up in a church and we're like, I don't know, this church has just always been here as far as I'm concerned. Or we move to a new area or something happens and we just start looking around. If you're a Christian and you're looking for a home church, you look around, oh, here's all these churches and you figure out which one you're going to be a part of. And like we experience them as if like, well, they're just here, right? It's just part of the furniture in the room. But somebody built that piece of furniture at some point and they didn't have to. They actually built it at great cost. Local churches come into being because people have a vision beyond themselves and their own immediate interests. So they invest heavily and they risk greatly so that that the mission that we've been reading about in the book of Acts can go forward. We've seen as this book started that God has an agenda. He's pursuing a mission. It is to make disciples of Jesus, that's the Bible word for it, followers of Christ, by spreading the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches. So, of course, this, this dedication to multiplying disciples of Jesus through disciple-making churches did not start in Chicago in 1943. <laughs> not by a long shot. I just stopped tracing it for our purposes this morning at that point. But what we've actually seen here in the New Testament book of Acts, and what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 11, is that history's very first local church in Jerusalem in the first century embraced this calling to make disciples of Jesus by spreading the gospel of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches and thus they set the pattern for all churches since. Why did they do that? Because Jesus commanded it and Christ is our King. But vision requires intentionality. It requires sacrifice and those Two things are not natural for any of us. Because intentionality means effort. Sacrifice means I'm uncomfortable. And none of us sign up to be uncomfortable. We have to believe in something so much greater than ourselves. It makes being uncomfortable worth it. And that's what this chapter this morning is going to show us. What we're going to see this morning is that in order for God's agenda to advance... Churches must fight the natural pull towards settling. And we do that by inviting God to regularly reform our vision and our practice. That's really what this chapter is about. 
um, on its first read, Acts chapter 11 reads pretty informationally. It feels like it's just a historical account full of details that have either already been communicated or are just setting up the next thing to come. It feels like a transitionary chapter because in the narrative of the story of the book of Acts, it is a transitionary chapter, but there's so much more going on here than just information. We'll see that here in a second. The first half of the chapter, it divides neatly into two halves. What we see is the Jerusalem church reforming its understanding of what God is doing in the world. And then in the second half of the chapter, they bring their practice into line with that new understanding through immediate obedience. And in that we find a model of what God desires for all local churches. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 11. Read the first couple of verses to set the stage. Uh, you recall from last week, uh, if you were with us, uh, the Apostle Peter had left. He'd gone down to the seacoast and visited a couple towns, gotten this big vision from God about how the gospel was supposed to go out to non-Jewish people, which was a huge thing for them in that day. It made Peter really uncomfortable, but God said do it, and so he obeyed. God reformed his understanding of how God was working, and then Peter immediately got into line with that, even though it made him really uncomfortable. And that's where he picked the story up because now he returns to Jerusalem to tell the church what's going on. And so it's the, the church congregation, the members of this Jerusalem church are the main sort of characters, the main focus in Acts chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now let's just pause right there. This is setting up the issue. This is setting up the issue. The circumcision party, that is Christians, remember in the Jerusalem church, they were almost all at this point from a Jewish background. So you've got to follow the Old Testament law and, and do all the right things according to the Old Testament and then you can embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior and you will be saved. And we talked last week about how it was wrong for a Jewish person in that day and age to go into the house of somebody who wasn't Jewish and receive their hospitality and eat their food because they ate foods that were not okay according to the Old Testament and they prepared them in ways that were not okay according to the Old Testament. And so the way you showed that you were a serious follower of God is you refused to go into the house of a non-Jewish person. And here's Peter, one of the most prominent figures in the early church, a disciple of Jesus himself walking straight into somebody's house who's not Jewish and eating with him. And they're like, dude, what is wrong with you? Of all people, Peter, you should know better. The story starts with the church members rebuking Peter, calling him out, calling him on the carpet for entering the house of a Gentile and eating his food. In response... Peter essentially summarizes and recounts all of the events of Acts chapter 10. He shortens them up a little bit, but he puts his emphasis on the words of Jesus. Verse 4, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I saw that there were animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, nothing, uncommon or, uh, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Some of these foods that Jews weren't supposed to eat, God is now telling him to eat. 
Verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and it was drawn up again into heaven. Then at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, so Peter's cut some other guys with him. He's like, they're my witnesses, right? And so we went and entered the man's house. Verse 13, he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now here, Peter adds something to the narrative that was not in Acts chapter 10. He tells us his own thinking and discovering process, verses 16 and 17. And I remembered the words of the Lord Jesus. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who is I that I could stand in God's way? By recounting the events of Acts chapter 10 and and shortening them, Peter puts the emphasis on the words of God. God told me to do something I thought was against God's will. God told me he's the one who writes the rules and I should obey him. And so I did it. I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what was going on. Just like you guys are uncomfortable right now and you're calling me out for what I did. He's like, but listen what happened. Here's these non-Jewish people begging to hear about Jesus. I tell them about Jesus. They believe and the Holy Spirit of God falls on them. And he's like, and then I remembered I remember Jesus himself told us, this is clear back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, right before he left his disciples and returned to heaven. Jesus said to them, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit is going to come into the life of everybody who is a follower of Christ, everybody who puts their faith and trust in him. Peter's like, I'm listening to Jesus' words and I'm seeing the Holy Spirit come into the lives of non-Jewish people even though they haven't followed the Old Testament law yet and I realize God's doing something new. And so I accepted it. It made me really uncomfortable because it went against everything I'd ever known about what God wants, but I accepted it because God said so. At this point in the narrative, I think it's just important to note how hard this was for these people to hear. Because it it goes against everything they've been taught to believe about how to follow God. And these are good, religious, church-going people. They're they're not slouches. But it's as if everything they've been told about what it means to follow God is wrong. And that's hard. It's important to recognize because this message is not really hard for us as 21st century Americans where we're taught to, you know, value diversity and and to appreciate differences in people. That's kind of part of our, our cultural way of looking at life. And there's a lot of that that's really good. And so we're like, well, of course, God doesn't just like only like Jewish people or only save Jewish people. God's for everybody. And we're like, well, yeah, as Americans, we're like, that's how it should be. God's for everybody, right? But for them at that time, it's like, whoa, this was completely upside down. You had to become part of the people of God first. That's either you're born Jewish or you convert. Non-Jews could convert to Judaism in that day. And you've got to follow all the Old Testament rules. That's what marks you off as part of the people of God. Then you can embrace Jesus as your Savior. That was their mindset. 
Up until now, that Jerusalem church had worked among Jews and Jewish converts. They were just beginning a couple chapters ago to work with Samaritans, their neighbors to the north, and we talked about those folks. They're sort of partly Jewish, and they didn't believe in the whole Old Testament, but they still believed in the Old Testament law of Moses. And so that was kind of a stretch for them, but they were just starting to get used to the idea that maybe we're supposed to share the gospel with these Samaritans too. Now you're talking about taking the gospel to people that have no background in the Old Testament or Judaism at all. That was a shock for them. How did they respond? Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. That doesn't mean they stopped talking. It means their criticisms stopped. (laughs) They actually kept talking. Look what they said. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you take this section as a whole, it's pretty clear what's going on. The church is in focus, these people. How did they start this section? How did they end it? They start the section confronting Peter about violating Jewish practice. They end this section with their criticisms silenced, having their viewpoint expanded into territory that was extremely uncomfortable for them. It actually was more than just uncomfortable. It went against everything they believed was essential to following God. They accepted that because it was what Jesus taught. Just before we get to the second half of the chapter, dare I say, this is a common pattern that churches in all days and ages need to follow. Last week we made the point that Peter had his view of who God was and what God was doing expanded and and reformed in a way that he didn't even know it needed to be reformed. And we pointed out that, that Peter was no slouch at this point. Like he was just killing it for Jesus. He was faithful, he was sharing the gospel, he was even working miracles. And God's like, yeah, but you still need to totally get your head around a new idea of what I'm doing. And the Jerusalem church is in the same boat. As a church, these guys are knocking it out of the park. Thousands and thousands of people are coming to Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeing miracles happen. They're seeing people repent and find eternal life in Christ. They're loving one another. They're sacrificially giving to one another. There is very little about the life of this early church at this point in history that you could point to and find fault with. (laughs) Oh, if our church was what their church was in all ways, I'd be super happy. And yet, the whole way we do things around here for them had to change. Because God was doing something much bigger than they had come to believe. This is not a problem for the Jerusalem church in the first century. This is a problem. This is a need for all churches at all times. Perhaps especially in places like America today, where we've been at this church thing and this Jesus thing for a long, long time in our part of the world and in our country. We need to fairly regularly check our course and allow God to inform our vision. Because over time, you you get off. And so as these people move from criticizing Peter to embracing what God is doing, you realize that there's, there's a course correction taking place. Think of it this way. If you get off course a little bit over a short distance, you don't notice it much. Do a little thought experiment with me. Say you jump in a boat and you're headed from Astoria to uh, Honolulu. Okay? You're going to Hawaii on a sailboat. 
and um, you get headed in the right direction, but you're off by about two degrees. Not that far. You get 50 miles offshore, if you're able to check your position, you're going to basically be about where you thought you're thought you supposed to be, right? Here's the problem. It's more than 50 miles to Hawaii. It's 2,500 miles. If you stay that two degrees off course, by the time you get 2,500 miles, where are you going to be? Well, dusting off my mad high school math skills, <laughs> if I did the calculations correctly, you would miss Hawaii by almost 100 miles. You would go right past the islands. They'd be so far away, you wouldn't even see them on the horizon. You'd keep going and going and landing like Papua New Guinea going, where did this place come from? Where's Hawaii? What happened to it? <laughs> Nothing. You just missed it. Because you get a little bit off course over a short distance, it's not that big a deal, but over time, that distance gets bigger and bigger. And you can wake up and realize, what happened? We are so far off the original course. How did we get here? And you see, the, the reality is the natural pull of all people, and therefore all churches, because churches are just groups of people, the natural pull of people and churches is inward. Isn't it? It's inward. That's our natural bent. So people who are focused on how do I live my life, how can I do the best I can do, gradually build a church life that caters to our own interests. And over time, though in many churches it happens so gradually you don't even notice it happening until you look up and realize how far off course you are at some point. Over time, our questions gradually shift to like, are my needs being met in this church? rather than our disciples being made in this church. Do you see the difference between those two? It's dramatic. It's radical. But we often don't see it coming because of the slow drift. Unfortunately, we have a lot going against us. I mentioned this is the natural pull of all people. It's my pull. It's the pull that's on my heart. The Bible describes what uh, some pastors and preachers like to refer to as an unholy trinity of forces that are arrayed against the church. The Bible describes the world, the flesh, and the devil. What it means by that is simply this. The world is, is like our society, the culture that you live in. In our case, it's very modern, it's very consumer-driven. And that ends up shaping the way that we think about everything because it's the, it's the air we breathe, so to speak, including shaping the way that we follow Jesus, there's a consumeristic tint. Is this meeting my needs? That's how we're taught to think. Now you add that to what the Bible calls our flesh, which means the natural sinful tendencies that we have to focus on us. This natural tendency I have to build the kingdom of Matt, not the kingdom of Jesus. That's what's in my heart, and that's part of what the Bible calls sin. You see, sin isn't just morally wrong actions that I perform, although it is that, it goes deeper than that. Even if I'm not doing anything sinful at the moment, I am still sinful, the Bible says, because I have a heart whose natural bent is toward myself, not toward the God who made me. The Bible calls that the flesh. There's this pull to live for me rather than Jesus. So I'm in this consumeristic society. I have this natural pull anyway to live for me rather than Jesus. And then thirdly, we've got the devil. Who out there, who's out there and is smart enough to orchestrate all these things 
to help make churches ineffective over time. That's what we're up against. You don't often see it when you're just drifting two degrees off mile after mile. But eventually somebody says, I'm standing on the shores of Oahu. Why are you way out there? And you suddenly realize how far you've drifted. Amy and I had an experience like that this past week. She was watching an online conference. I joined in and watched a particular interview called the IF Gathering. It took place um, all online this year. And they were really emphasizing an incredible, miraculous spiritual awakening movement that is taking place right now today in, of all places, Iran. Thousands and thousands of men and women are seeing the reality because of the hardline extremism there of just how empty Islam is. And God often miraculously is giving people visions, sending people missionaries, radically converting people, many of whom are being raped and killed for their conversions, and they continue to say it's worth it because Jesus is greater. One of the guys interviewed is an American guy who had gone to Iran, uh, was doing work there, met an Iranian woman who was a Christian. She had been radically converted to Christ from Islam, which can get you killed in Iran. And um, they married. And after some time, he moved her back to the U.S. He's like, this will be great. She's, She's free now. She's in the land of the free. She can have so much more than she could have. She doesn't have to worry about government agents coming in and arresting her or beating her or raping her or killing her just because she's a Christian who wouldn't want to leave Iran and come to the U.S. After three months, she told her husband she wanted to go back to Iran. She started talking to him, can we move back? And he's like, why would you want to move back there? She began talking to him about the satanic lullaby. I believe that was the exact phrase he used, if I remember right. The satanic lullaby that lulls American Christians to sleep. And she says, I'm afraid it'll lull me to sleep too. I don't want anything to do with this. I want to go follow Jesus. They moved back to Iran. He's giving this interview on a screen where they've deliberately blurted out so you can't see his face and they've run his voice through a kind of Um, mechanical, computerized, pixelated things so that he can't be identified because he's there now and if he identifies himself as a missionary, he and his wife are in real danger. And I look at a Iranian sister in Christ who would rather have Jesus in short-term pain up to and including her potential death than have a superficial church life and short-term comfort here and now. And I go, how far off have I gotten? You know? Iran is a very different place than the United States, but the call of Jesus is the same. As German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. There's no greater treasure than me. Give all to make me known. If she's not afraid to die, why am I afraid to talk to a neighbor? You realize how far off course you've gotten. Day 17 of the Lent readings that many of us are doing together as a church touched on this in an important way just this past week, a few days ago. The reading was about where we seek treasure. The author put it this way, there are only two places to look in the end. You can attach the desires of your heart and the hope of your life to earthbound treasure or heavenward treasure. It's either or. You are searching horizontally or you're looking vertically. And he concludes, the kingdom of heaven is the only thing worth giving everything up for.
Where is my treasure? Church, where's your treasure? Where's our treasure? What are we giving ourselves to that's worth losing everything for should we need to, and we could lose it all and still say, that was worth it. To combat this, uh, quote-unquote, unholy trinity, we have a very holy trinity, three essential resources God has given us. God has given us his word, the Bible. He's given us his Holy Spirit who lives in us, and he's given us his church, the people of God. Not surprising to find all three of those things right at the center of the message of the book of Acts. As God's people, we need to help one another open up Jesus' words and read them and not explain away the harsh things that Jesus says that he couldn't really mean that because he wouldn't really want us to be uncomfortable, right? Sure he would. This is the guy who was whipped and beaten bloody and executed on a cross, but just before that he said, by the way, follow me follow me. We need to open up Jesus' word and help each other do that and let the Holy Spirit's heart-searching and sin-convicting work compare our current course with our Lord's chosen one. Bringing our actions back into line as needed. Then, and only then, will we be on mission for our Savior. Where's our treasure? Where's our treasure? We need to see it we need to obey it. That's what the Jerusalem church did. That leads us to the second half of this chapter. In the first half, they had their, their vision of what God was doing significantly expanded in a way that, in some senses, was probably humiliating for them because they thought they had it figured out, and they didn't yet, and it was definitely very uncomfortable, but they accepted it. But you know what? They did more than just accept the ideas and agree with the principles. They immediately obeyed what they understood Jesus to be saying. And we see that in the second half of this chapter where the focus now shifts to a new church that got started in the city at the time that was known as Antioch. It's up on a map up there uh, north of Jerusalem in the far kind of north uh, east corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we've already seen this, right? Uh, God is, has used really harsh and painful circumstances to uproot people's lives. They lost a lot. Many of them lost everything financially. They had to run for their lives. And God says, yeah, this is part of my plans, what you're going to sacrifice to carry the message further than you would have gone on your own. And so they're going and they're talking about Jesus, but the Bible makes it clear they were only talking to Jesus, to Jewish people, God's people. Until, verse 20, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, that is, Greek-speaking and Greek-cultured people who are not Jewish, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Just pause. What's happening? As we already saw earlier, this like aggressive uh, persecution drove them out, and, and they're, they're talking only to Jewish people, but now we learn that a few of them started sharing the gospel with non-Jewish people in the city of Antioch. Antioch's going to become important to the narrative of the book of Acts. It was a hugely influential city during the first century, the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, behind Rome itself, and I believe Alexandria, northern Egypt, was probably the second largest, if I've got that right. 
the vast majority of the huge population of Antioch was thoroughly Gentile. Very few Jewish believers there. It was a thoroughly non-Jewish city. And people go there and they start talking about Jesus and there's as many people who want to come to Jesus there as there are in the Jewish areas. Now that sets up the key part of this, verse 22. Uh, sorry, verse 20. Yeah, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. The Jerusalem church hears, wait a second, we just had our minds blown by Peter's report of what God is doing. (laughs) And now we hear that there's all these people up in Antioch who aren't even Jewish and they want to be followers of Jesus. They basically got three options. One, they can try to control it. They can run up to Antioch and say, stop with all the Jesus stuff. You've got to become Jewish first. You've got to be part of the people of God and do all this other stuff first, and then we can get to Jesus. And by the way, you guys that were telling Gentiles about Jesus, knock it off. You only tell it to Jewish people. Like, they could have tried to control it, number one. Number two, they could ignore it. <laughs> they could just say, some loose cannon is out there talking to people they shouldn't be talking to, but that's not really our responsibility. We're just going to do what God has called us to do. Or number three, they could support it. They could support it. They could establish these brand new people who are new followers of Christ in a healthy church just as they were doing elsewhere all around the Jewish areas of Judea. What we see is that with their newly reformed understanding from the first half of the chapter, they opted for number three. They immediately obeyed the voice of Jesus and said, we're going to invest in this very different and non-Jewish move of God's Spirit. They sent Barnabas to see if the stories were true, to clarify the gospel, to make sure they were understanding it right, and if so, to establish them, to teach them, and help them understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and organize yourself into a church, and be the platform for gospel witness in your city. Verse 25, when Barnabas got there, things were going well. So well, in fact, that he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's up on the top of that map there, a little over to the west. He finds Saul, the Apostle Paul, who we met before, grabs him, brings him back to Antioch. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, Christians, those who are of Christ. The Jerusalem church sends Barnabas, an established leader in their church. He sees what's going on. He's overjoyed. He gets Paul, and together they return to Antioch. They set up shop, and they live there for a whole year. They uproot and transplant their lives to be part of what God is doing in this part of the world. They organize and strengthen this rapidly growing church. I think what really stands out to me about this, this key issue, is that of immediate obedience. immediate obedience. This church in this narrative barely has time to catch their breath and digest what God is telling them to do and he immediately gives them an opportunity to act on it. And they're like, okay, they do. When they sent Barnabas, that was an investment of them. First of all, they were sending out a leader who was a wonderful man and he was a great leader in their church and they were benefiting from him and they were gonna lose him. Turned out for over a year at least. 
but they were willing to make that investment. They probably also invested money by sending him. They were probably supporting him financially so that he could go on the road and move to Antioch and see what was going on there. They were willing to give to support this work of their people and of their money, likely. It was immediate obedience, which recalls the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, anybody know it? Obey everything that I've commanded. Not just teaching them everything I've commanded, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Would you have to learn everything Jesus commanded first and get all of that down and pass the test and then go start living as a Christian? No. Jesus commanded way too many things. So what do you do? You learn one lesson and then you obey it. That's being a disciple. You learn one lesson and you don't second guess it. You don't freak out about it. You step out in faith and you do it because Christ is king. That's what this church did. That's what this church did. Is there something that Jesus is commanding you? Friends, do it. Now, talk to that person. Pray for that neighbor. Ask that brother or sister in Christ the hard question that you're scared to bring up because you don't know how they're going to respond. Do it in love and grace, but do it. Change those plans. Whatever it is God is telling you to do in obedience to him, if it is a command of Christ, do it. That's what it means to be a disciple. This is a significant chapter in the flow of the narrative of the book of Acts, but it's also significant for us right now. The reason it's significant for what's happening in Acts is that this is a transitionary chapter. The focus is about to shift away from Jerusalem and the church there to this worldwide, Roman Empire-wide mission to largely non-Jewish people the city is going to shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, the, the people are going to shift from Peter and James and John to largely guys like Paul and Barnabas because the narrative is shifting from the gospel going out to people from many regions and many ethnic backgrounds. That's to accomplish the mission that Jesus laid out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Go make disciples of all peoples, he said. The church in Antioch will become the central basis, the central base, rather, for this endeavor. Paul and Barnabas will become central players, especially Paul. God has an agenda. He's doing something in the world, and God's people get in line with that. That's what the Bible wants us to see. So we're going to hear a lot less about Jerusalem from this point forward and a lot more about Antioch and Paul. It's important to the narrative of Acts. But let's, let's land, spending a minute or two, reflecting on how this impacts Harvest Community Church in the 21st century today. We've seen, if nothing else, that the worldwide disciple-making mission of Jesus entails two things. First, it entails disciples who make disciples. That's people who are following Christ, who invest themselves in helping other people follow Christ. That's what Jesus wants us to do as a church. Whatever else and let's be really practical. I mean, this, this applies to all churches, but let's talk about our church, right? Whatever else we do or don't do as a church, 
regardless of how good we are at this or how bad we are at that or whether we run this kind of a program or that kind of an activity, those things are important, but they're not ultimately important. Whatever we do, we have to do that. If we're following our Lord, we have to equip disciples of Jesus to make more disciples of Jesus. That is, to equip every Christian in our church to become more like Christ and to then help other Christians do the same. That is God's calling on your life. And as church leaders, it's our job to equip you. That's who we are. That's the heart of what God has called us to do. It requires disciples making disciples, but it also requires disciple-making churches to invest themselves in making other disciple-making churches. We've talked about the commitment the Jerusalem church made by sending Barnabas. They lost a leader. They invested money. What's interesting and if you know the story of the book of Acts, you know what happens. The church in Antioch, not only it gets established and grows, it actually grows so strongly that even by the end of the chapter, there's a little note that there was a famine and the church in, in Judea, and so there was like people having a hard time finding enough money to buy food, and the church in Antioch raises some money and sends a relief offering, a financial gift to the people in Jerusalem. The daughter church is now financially supporting the mother church. That's in a hard way. And that's only a foretaste of what is to come. The church in Jerusalem invested in the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch exploded as a basis for empire-wide evangelism. And in that sense, the church in Jerusalem made an investment that far outstripped their own ability to reach people for Christ. Why is that significant? Because... Churches need to help disciples make disciples. And churches need to have a vision to invest ourselves in partnership with other churches to revitalize them, to start new ones, and to partner together to see gospel ministry happen in our city and around the world. That's our heart as a church. We want to partner with people locally and globally who are doing that. Because that's what Christ commands. And Christ is the king. So, i close with this. This understanding of what God is doing is significant when it comes to a church like Harvest during one of those periodic course evaluations that we always need to do from time to time and there's no greater year to do it than this one. 2021 is the year, Lord willing, that we um, start to emerge from COVID. Whatever that's going to mean. But we've already seen in the early parts of the year, it means fewer restrictions, greater ability to gather and to function the way the Bible describes we are supposed to as a church. By God's grace, Lord willing, we will see more and more of that happen. But here's the thing, we don't just want to go back to the same church that we were in 2019 because there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity that is born of tragedy. The pandemic has not been a good thing. It's not been a good thing. It's been harmful for families. It's been difficult for businesses. It's been harmful for individuals. People have gotten sick and died. It's been harmful for us as a church. We're not gathering fully and regularly. Many of us have gotten disconnected from the church over time. There's so many things we can say about this pandemic year that it has been hard and it has not been good. So I don't ever want to be heard to be saying that this is a good thing. It's not. It's a bad thing. But here's the deal. Our God has this habit of flipping the script. Have you ever noticed that? He takes really bad things that are really bad and he brings even greater good out of them. One of the things that this pandemic year has given us an opportunity to do is to step back 
and really think about why we do what we do as churches, as a church. How does whatever we're doing help us equip our members to make disciples and help us as a church multiply to make other disciple-making churches? Increasingly, just for myself personally, I realize I don't want to present people with a bolt-on Jesus, you know? If you pardon the automotive terminology there. Like, Jesus is an accessory that you just sort of bolt onto your life, and he can sort of turbocharge your life, you know? You're still fundamentally the same person. You've got the same career goals, the same marriage, the same desires, the same um, recreational activities, and if you bolt Jesus onto that, he can turbocharge that life, help you have a happier marriage, maybe get greater success, bring you greater peace and happiness. And I fear that so many times in our country, people come to churches and come to Jesus with that in mind, and we don't even realize we're doing it. We think we're all about Jesus, but we're just bolting him onto our lives without fundamentally changing. When in reality, what the Bible describes Jesus as doing is that he's not really a bolt-on accessory. He's an entirely new engine. Brand new technology like nothing you've ever seen before. And what he actually wants to do is to strip your life down to the frame and rebuild it around this entirely different engine that's going to require some cutting and some bending of metal to make it fit and it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt at times but he's not just looking to turbocharge your old life he's looking to make you a whole new person i have to ask myself how often is that the jesus i'm following how clearly is that the jesus that i'm preaching i think that's the jesus who is described in the pages of the bible my prayer is that we as a church emerge from this COVID pandemic, laser-focused on being disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus and investing and starting and revitalizing other disciple-making churches in our area and around the world because there's simply no treasure greater than that. There's no treasure that is worth giving everything for but the kingdom of God. As the worship team comes up to lead us, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we have sought to the best of our human and limited abilities this morning to come together as your people and to open the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to hear from him, and we invite you now to illuminate the truths of your word. Not my words, my words don't matter. Your word matters. So would you illuminate them for each and every one of us? God, if there are men and women here or tuning into our stream who are feeling the pull on their hearts to commit to Christ as Lord and Savior for the first time in their lives, I pray that you would push them over the finish line. I pray that you would encourage them not to listen to all the reasons to resist you, but that you would grant the gift of faith and repentance so that people can find life in Christ. Father, for those of us who are members of this church and followers of you, I pray that you would renew our vision as individuals, and as a church. Help us to be on mission for who you are and what you're doing. We can't accomplish anything eternally, but we can offer ourselves to you, extending ourselves in faith. And as we do that, we pray that you would show up in powerful ways. Show us how to obey you today, this week, and as a church in the coming months. Receive our worship now as people with open hands and open hearts saying, use us. This we ask in your son's name for our good and his glory. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we sing?